And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Good Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf with the Good Street Podcast. Did you want, okay, we just won't do a retake on that. We're both completely exhausted. You had, you had an epic trip uh, to the United States uh, with yes. the goal of going to Kansas City for World Fantasy, but it was a family trip. We got together in... Uh, in, in New York, we, we, we met Alex Harrow in New York. We had a lot of – so that was, uh, that was, I guess, your trip of the year, wasn't it? it? It was the one and only trip of the year, Gary. I don't expect to have – well, I know there won't be another trip this year. And it was – I mean, it was good, but, boy, it was it was tiring. And the, the flights, everybody's still yelling at me about the flights that we booked. Uh-huh. But at well, the end we, of we the whole – We took the longest flights in the world. Well, you, you – you're, you're you're leaving. You're you're living in a place that is farther away from anywhere else. So it's it's not my fault. I had it was a 55 minute flight for me to go to Kansas City, um, but nevertheless, wind friends, Gary. Okay, okay, fine, fine. Um, I realize if all the major science fiction conventions were in Australia and New Zealand, I would currently be in the position that you were in. But tell us about Kansas City, because it was being a guest of honor at World Fantasy, which is, when you think about it, a singular honor. Only 40 or 50 people have had that, however many World Fantasy conventions there have been. I don't know. You and, uh, and, and, and Ken Johnson, who we got to spend some time with uh, as well, and recording a podcast with. So how was your experience at, uh, at this, year, this year's World Fantasy? It was fabulous. There was a wonderful bunch of guests to start off with. I mean, you know, you mentioned Kidge, and there was uh, Adam Tricastro and Vincent mm-hmm. Delafranca and Tanan Rivdu and Stephen Barnes were the Toastmasters, and everybody seemed really lovely. The committee were fantastic, I have to say, the whole way through. And from what I can tell, from my perspective at least, which was obviously very cosseted, um, the convention went really well. It was nice to be back after the long period of time that we've had with COVID and interruptions. This one was one that began to really feel a bit like World Fantasy Convention should do. I mean, I I was there obviously for Worldcon in Chicago with you last year. Right. And that still felt like it was happening in the sort of shadow of COVID. Um, This one, though, you know, did begin to feel like a a normal convention, still smaller than usual, uh, would be my guess. I think it was probably about forty percent down on its typical. But um, you know, I guess we'll you know sort of we'll see how it goes. I mean, I'm hopeful that World Fantasy can find a way back to its former glory, though I do think it's got a lot of real structural challenges that are you know part of what's happened in the world. I think one of the things that has happened uh, with, with with all the major all all the annual conventions, especially the ones that I uh, used to go to is that there to some extent the whole pandemic changed the nature of these conventions. It changed the sense of uh, this is somebody you can expect to see every year. It's somebody mm. you uh, you know you, you you get together with your family reunion and and the same people will show up at two or three different conventions. Worldcon is a little bit too large to fit into that family like mold. But one of the things I've noticed is that. Uh, I would see people, I saw some people in Kansas City and last year in New Orleans that I hadn't seen in years, talk to people who I'd 
seen glancingly but hadn't talked to it extensively. And, and you realize that, okay, to some extent, there was a gap in the normal convention schedule that wasn't just the two years, that be, began with that two years and is still going on to some extent. And part of what makes me think uh, that the nature of the conventions has shifted is a lot of things happened in that time when we weren't seeing people at conventions. One of the things that struck me as a, a difficult thing to deal with, and I put a weird note on Facebook about a couple of days ago, was I used to see Michael Bishop probably once a year. Um, now, I yes. haven't seen him in several years, but again, he was one of those people and an incredibly kind and nice and always, you know, you always have a, uh, a meal or a drink with him. And people like that begin to disappear. Uh, they begin to disappear as the conventions begin to recover themselves. So, so in a real sense, and this may be partly my age, in a real sense, the conventions that uh, seem to be like a bi-monthly uh, or two or three times a year at least, event, are never going to be that again. There, there are new people coming in. There's a new kind of convention. But you, you can't recreate uh, the pre-COVID convention atmosphere, I don't think. They can't be what they were just because, you know, the people that naturally come and go. I mean, what you've yeah. alluded to without saying outright is, of course, just recently Michael Bishop very sadly passed away and mm -hmm. will be sorely missed, a wonderful, wonderful writer who – produced a lot of landmark fiction, but was also widely loved throughout the community I mean, and admired. Absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful person. But I think the change, I mean, I think that kind of change is sadly a natural progression of right. a long lived convention. The structural changes to conventions have to do with travel. They have to do with virtual conventions. Right. They have to do with things that preceded the existence of the pandemic. Things like changes to dealers rooms because people felt feel they can buy stuff online i saw mm -hmm. a disappointing a disappointedly outraged uh post from a bookroom dealer about mm -hmm. from the convention because someone was literally standing at their stall looking at their books and then buying them online elsewhere right which is you know is a real problem when when the, the dealers room has always been a part of the heart of a convention. And then, frankly, publishing doesn't go to these conventions. I mean, yeah, that's one the of other. the great attractions of World Fantasy was that was where you get editors, publishers, those kind of people. Well, they don't go now very much. So mm -hmm. it's that changes things. It's also true for uh, Worldcon as well. When I started going to Worldcon and then went on to World Fantasy, it was a guaranteed thing that for most evenings of the convention, there would be large convention a large uh, publisher parties and things sponsored parties. Those things happen at all anymore i mean <laughs> if you'd said 10 years ago that tor for example wouldn't be having a publishing a publisher party at, at a convention people wouldn't have believed you it was such a tradition but mm -hmm. with david hartwell part, uh, dying you know some years ago and other changes at that, that, that company they no longer do that and those are changes we just have to adapt to the conventions are going to be different some of it is good which we've talked about. I think the virtual part of conventions is great, particularly the way of including people mm -hmm. from around the world who can't readily afford to fly to Chicago or New York or wherever it might be. And then, you know, but it's finding a new, a new way. And that, that's not easy. It's going to be going to be interesting to see how, how it goes from here. Well, so, so apart from, uh, apart from this convention, world fantasy, and the, the one I go to in, in, in March at ICFA, the international conference, I don't expect, I'm not planning on going anything probably until Glasgow of next year. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm sure things will come up. But I guess that's what I'm saying. 
it's uh, it's an ad hoc decision now whether to go to someplace. Uh, would we be going to Glasgow for Worldcon if it weren't Glasgow? I don't know. I really liked Glasgow the last time I was there, and it's it's an excuse to go to uh, in, in, to go to Isla and try out different scotches. I'm sure um, can't wait for that. So. Uh, so, so I, I think I guess what I was saying is that the idea of a convention as a several times a year habit uh, may not come back the way it once did. And I think, that, yeah, and it'll that, be interesting to see which is an artifact of our personal experience and yeah. how much that is an artifact of what's happening in the thing. However, some things hold inevitably true, Gary. You know, the end. Mm. I mean, by which I should before I segue out of that, I want to say. There was a very unusual thing that happened at around the time of world fantasy, mm. which impacted world fantasy directly with for a few people, and that was, of course, for the first time I think ever, world fantasy was a week apart from world worldcon itself. Right. So there were some deeply jet lagged travelers who staggered in from, you know, Chengdu to attend uh, the Kansas City World Fantasy, and so you know. That was very unusual. Well, I guess one of the other things I wonder about when I looked at a lot of the reports and a lot of the I was I was on uh, the Discord server that for a lot of the nominees, uh, there was a sense that I had from people talking about Chengdu and people I talked to who had been there that, in a strange way, it felt on a gigantic scale like very early conventions must have in the fifties. In other words. Yeah. People who were there because they were fans. It wasn't there. You're right. It, it wasn't there for publishers. It was there to kind of celebrate a community that was much more, I suppose, an international community than it was. But yeah. it, 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 it struck me as people were there just to have fun in the way that um, that's we got away from. I think you're right. Publishers not showing up is not a good thing in terms of going to free parties and that sort of thing. But also there was a there was always a danger of a corporatization of a world con or a world fantasy. If, if, if too many people uh, had vested interests in selling their products there and that sort of thing, it became less of a fan convention. The sense I got in Kansas City, despite the lack of uh, participation from publishers, was that it felt like uh, it, it felt like it was by the fans and for the fans. And that had good and bad repercussions i mean there was not as far as i know ever a program book um uh, they're maybe, sending that out i think okay maybe they'll send out a program book and that sort of but you know it would be great because you don't have to carry it home well that's that's a good point too um i mean the same thing with you know the swag bags you get at these things where you try to figure out how much of this can i put in my luggage and how much do i leave on the uh table to trade off um uh, what what i'm what i'm getting at though is that there was um uh, a, a sense that, uh, you know, this has fallen back into being just a community. It's not a professional convention. World Fantasy was more of a professional convention in many ways than Worldcon was because it was so dominated by a handful of publishers. And the World Fantasy mm. Awards were, you know, not run by publishers, well, but they were run by people. What you could overlook was that it was run by them too. I mean, yeah, not as right, a business, exactly. but I mean... If when I think about the people who I think about as having been central to world fantasy convention over time, uh, people like David Hartwell, like mm -hmm. the, like the late John Douglas, um, you know, uh, Gordon Van Gel Del Gelder, Alan Datlow, these people, that uh, Stephen Jones, they've been closely associated with publishers and the field for a very very long time. So you know, 
it's not too surprising that 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 you would get that link. I will say though, I mean, to sort of like segue out of conventions, yes. I thought Kansas City was a, a huge success for me. I saw lots of people. It was a great pleasure. I saw Paolo Bacigalupi, who I hadn't seen for a while, spent hours talking to him about his new novel, which sounds fascinating, and everybody can wait to see his sort of Cosa Nostra dragon novel coming out in the middle mm. of next year. And, you know, we have conventions to look forward to. I should probably, as a former guest of honor for World Fantasy, be huckstering for uh, people to go buy convention memberships because they're out there in the world now for the Niagara Falls World Fantasy next October, which I assume you will go to because it'll be easy to go to. It'll be easy to go to, and one of the advantages, I think, of the Niagara Falls location is that I'm thinking of it as a semi-Canadian world fantasy since Niagara Falls is so access- is equally accessible uh, from major cities in Canada as it is from major cities in the United States. So a number of people we haven't seen in American conventions I hope to see there. It will be a very interesting test because, of course, it's still over the border, Gary. It's not Niagara Falls, Canada. It's Niagara Falls, USA. We can meet in the middle of the bridge and swap prisoners or something. I don't know. I don't know if programming can work like that, though, Gary. I have a th- we, we have a totally new idea. Uh, you know, international conventions literally on the border. That would be exciting. Yes, yes. Three, you know, three people on one side, three people on the other. But anyway, and then, I mean, th- that, of course, is the one that follows the Worldcon you've referred to, which is the, the Glasgow Worldcon. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, Glasgow, I'm barring health or financial problems, uh, I will be at with my dear wife, Marianne, who also attended Kansas City, the first, her first World Fantasy in a long, long time. Mm-hmm. As to Niagara, I don't know. Probably not. I'd like to, but I think so. But Seattle is, is the year after Glasgow. So for Yeah, but, but Manchester is also the year after. That's true, too. Anyway, we've been segueing out of discussing about discussing conventions. For the last years now, yes. That's very us. And we, we, have, we have heard from listeners more than once about maybe spending too much time talking about conventions, maybe spending Indeed. too much time talking about awards. Um, have. And they're absolutely right. They are. You, you, there's no point in arguing it. They are correct. So we will t- now segue into talking about the end of the year and awards. Well, awards eligibility, this is an interesting issue uh, when it becomes a literary issue. Uh, the, the question of uh, people putting up posts saying, I published this this year, four-year, con- it, it's, it's, the, it's, it's the publishing equivalent of movie studios running four-year consideration billboards and ads all over Hollywood. Oh, oh, yeah. uh, but <clears throat> one of the questions that does come up, uh, and it came up today on, in, in Facebook, was when you have uh, a major work by, let's say, Nicola Griffith, Mainwood, uh, which is not fantasy and is not science fiction, and yet appeals to um, science fiction readers. And one of the things that uh, Nicola mentioned in her essay was something that Karen Joy Fowler once said about her own fiction, that whether, she, whether anyone calls it science fiction or fantasy, she thought she writes the kind of fiction that science fiction readers like to read, which mm-hmm. is an interesting way of looking at it. Um, uh, because... As, as several fantasy readers know and have pointed this out, um, the only difference between uh, a novel like Meanwood set in a very little-known, obscure portion of, of 6th century England, um, the world might as well be built up from scratch. Uh, it, 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 it's a completely uh, built world. I 
the, the term world building as an aesthetic in itself, as you know, bothers me. But it is the work that goes into making that world real uh, is, is, is very, very impressive. Now, if you take a novel like Meanwood, which takes place in a historically accurate setting with fictional characters inserted into it, how does that differ from a fantasy novel that takes place entirely in an imaginary kingdom that doesn't have magic and dragons in it? And there are such novels, as you know. I'm not sure. I mean, one of the things has to be, if you're going to be a fantasy novel, there is a non-realist element that is real in that world. Now, I guess the thing with something like Meanwood and Hild is if you're, if the the characters in the world believe that a supernatural thing mm-hmm. is real, is it fantastical? I mean, you could, I don't know. I don't have a good answer. I'll say it's almost easier to see Meanwood as being speculative fiction slash SF. Yeah. That it is like fantasy, but it will go into fantasy because it feels like fantasy. Yeah. Which, which, which goes back to the other question about awards eligibility. Uh, do you nominate something because it feels right to you? And my argument is, I can't imagine any other reason for nominating something. You cannot, you cannot invent a metric that says, you know, this is science fiction, this is fantasy, this is story. And if, if you want to use the term speculative fiction, then as I've argued before, how can you think of any historical fiction that isn't speculative? I mean, isn't that the nature of historical fiction being fiction? Well, the other thing is, I mean, you have to allow that what we're having now, and I mean, admittedly, this is the nature of our podcast, right? Our na- mm-hmm. The nature of our podcast is that it's a insider pool kind of thing. And we're sitting here going, you know, talking about these things. Most of the people involved don't think about this. You know, they're going to pick it up and go, it is people who seem to be doing, looking, have a fantastical worldview in a non-obviously technological environment that's fantasy good enough. Mm-hmm. That's um, what they're going to I, I, I think you're right in terms of reading things. I think that people don't necessarily uh, worry about, about genres, about putting things in categories. I mean, one of the things we've noticed, uh, uh, for example, before is the number of science fiction uh, and fantasy readers who enjoy, for example, the Master and Commander series, uh, you know, <laughs> who enjoy really good old-fashioned sea adventures that nobody would have thought of in terms of fantasy. So in terms of choosing your own reading, that's absolutely true. If it feels right, you enjoy it. Uh, Don't worry about the fact that a dragon never shows up. Sure, sure, sure. When you're nominating, when you're thinking about nominating for awards, though, you have to ask yourself, is if if I nominate Meanwood uh, as a novel, let's say, in the Locus Recommended Reading List, are we putting it in the science fiction section or in the fantasy section? Or do we not put it there at all because it's neither? Uh, I think it's likely likely to end up in one of those sections. Yeah, I, I think it's likely to end up in the fantasy section. Yeah, I is agree. My, is my guess. Though that's a conversation that's sort of ongoing. I will note that Hild wasn't nominated for the World Fantasy Award. So was maybe not. that was their view. And, I, and those people, I, I know that... When you're a juror, you take these things deeply into consideration. Right. Well, when you're a juror, you have to argue with other jurors. Uh, You know, there are five or six people. Again, this is the difference between a juried award and a voted award. Five or six people have to agree on things. And we had some very interesting discussions when I was a juror about what is this. Uh, One of the things that's come up more than once in world fantasy juries is a horror novel uh, like Silence of the Lambs, for example, that doesn't have any 
fantasy in it, but it's clearly a horror novel. It's clearly horrifying. So there are those issues. Uh, but when you're mm-hmm. doing your own nominations uh, for uh, for things like Hugo's and Nebula's and World Fantasy Awards and, uh, and, and, and Locus Awards and so forth, then you have to make a decision. What am I going to do uh, if I want to get this novel considered? Do you try to position it in the category that you think it will be strongest in? Or do you try to think of some genetic genre purity test that says, well, I can call this science fiction or, or, or not. I don't know. I mean, there, there are a lot of novels, uh, what I think of as general fiction novels, that involve science that very seldom get nominated for genre awards. But on the other hand, they might get nominated for the Worker Prize or a Pulitzer Prize. So, they might, they might, you know. I mean, I will say, genre purity tests have not been very successful over time, Gary. They tend no, not to they work. have not lasted, and by and large, if people are going to read uh, a, a class, I'm trying to think now of some classic fantasy novels. Okay, Peter Dickinson was one writer who wrote some uh, very effective fantasy novels quite a while ago that some of them, as I recall, had very little fantasy in them at all. I may be misremembering, mm. but... Uh, you know, if, if, if they get published as fantasy, and I know Ballantyne tried this for a while with the uh, uh, Ballantyne adult fantasy series, publishing things that were, you know, that, that were written and published before there was any notion of a fantasy genre at all, things that would have been considered epics, things that would have been considered uh, historical fiction even. And the argument more or less back then was if we can sell it as fantasy and if people buy it as fantasy, then it's fantasy. True, true. <sighs> so, okay. Uh, if we're going to touch on it or, or wade through it, how are you finding your attempts to summarize 2023 for our, our listership, for uh, the Locust readership and so on? Was it I'm, a good I'm, year? I've only begun to have thought to this. And, 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 and part of my thought is that uh, when I look over the things I've reviewed and the handful of things that in the field I've read that I haven't reviewed. One of the things, and I hope this doesn't sound controversial because it's meant to be uh, a kind of optimistic. For several years now, we've talked in year-end review essays about how the increasing diversity of the field has given us a whole panoply of writers from all the various countries. In Africa, we've seen Korean, we've seen South Asian writers and so forth, and diversity is a new thing. This year, diversity begins to feel more normal and less exceptional. It seems to me to be, it's becoming more and more a fabric, part of the fabric of, of the publishing industry. And when you see a major novel, a recent novel we talked to, and we, t- we talked to Wally Talabi about it, like Shigeru and the Brass Head of, of Bulofan, uh, it seems to be getting a lot of general attention, not because uh, here's a novel, here's a novelty, here's something by a Nigerian writer that involves Yoruba mythology. It's getting reviewed because it's a, it's a terrifically thrilling heist novel uh, which, which uses all this. So uh, is, it a, is, is, is it a sign of progress that it's no longer news to see novels from outside the Anglo-American-Australian uh, arena? I think that it is a sign of progress that we are starting to see to see authors whose careers are becoming embedded in the field who are who originate either outside the uh, North American or British Commonwealth markets, sure. Mm-hmm. I think it's a sign of progress that we're seeing uh, authors developing careers or establishing careers or having careers recognized that come from outside the 
uh, quite mainstream. I think that's true yeah. too. And outside the English speaking mainstream more and more, the question still remains in terms of the, the substance of that progress, how long it takes until they have established careers. I'm, I'm looking at a list of first novels right now for 2023. Mm. And there are a lot of names there that would not have been there 20 years ago. And certainly people like Wale Talabi, mm. like Jade Song, like uh, Vajra Chandrasekhar, like uh, Kemi Ashwingiwa. These people you know, ne wouldn't necessarily have been on the list 20 years ago. What I'm hoping is that they're names that we'll see because in another 10. Because when I look at the names that are on the not first novel lists at the moment, they're mm -hmm. still kind of familiar names. So it's seeing seeing careers establish and then you know stay, you know de develop that will be the real thing, and also seeing people recognised. There's no doubt that one of the most successful horror novels of the was the Reformatory by Tanana Rave Jew. Mm. Uh, which is a New York Times bestseller and has been raved about. Now, Tanana Jew not only was a uh, Toastmaster at the World Fantasy or, and a Worldcon guest of honor, mm -hmm. but has been writing in the field for like 30 years, but it feels like now's the point where finally it's like, oh, they're a major, major writer in the field. I think that's happening more as a general realization rather than in various spots. And so it's like when that becomes settled that I think we can say that there's been real change, but it's still in progress rather than achieved. I think that's a good point. And the idea, you're right. I mean, by now, I suppose, you're at Tanana Rivdu's early novels were all, well, I remember reading the first couple of novels and they were published kind of as like mainstream ghost story, haunted house uh, things that, uh, that did well, but it didn't seem to be regarded as part of the field. Now, I think you're right. People are recognizing she's been in the field for uh, for, 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 for years and years, people recognize that Nadia Korofor has established a career that goes back, what, 15 years or so, maybe more than mm -hmm. that. Um, I think one thing, so that's one point that we need to pay attention to. Yeah. Are these real careers? Are, are these first novels that may or may not uh, follow through? I mean, th there have been a lot of examples of people who have had multiple novels and seem to establish an identity. Saad Hussein, for example. Uh, is one. Mm -hmm. Usman Malik is another one. Uh, the, even though Usman actually only has the one collection of short stories, he seems to have a substantial career that at least seems to me to date back several years because these stories have been very high profile. The difference is, and I remember this conversation I had with Usman, uh, that even though we're getting a wider variety of, of, of authors and editors from around the world and from various uh, places we haven't seen them before, the publishing of those authors is still very much part of the American Anglo-American publishing empire. In other words, uh, Usman, his, his collection of short stories was published originally in Pakistan, eventually, uh, I think, Hashat, India, uh, picked it up. Zen Cho's first collection of stories was published in Malaysia. So, but in order to have the impact, let's say that Spirits Abroad, that that, that uh, Zen Cho's collection had, it needs to find a British or an American publisher. So, to some extent, the economic center of the genre is still in the basically places it's always been in. And I remember talking to uh, Korean writers and Nigerian writers and uh, uh, South Asian writers who say, no, it's not easy to get published in our countries. 
it's important to get published in the United States or England. We do need to be very careful of confirmation bias. True. You know, Locus is a North American magazine. Most of its staff are based in the United States, and they're mostly reviewing pub- books published in the United States, sold to readers in the United States, or in the United Kingdom. That's overwhelmingly what it was. So, I mean, when you look at the Locus recommended reading list in it over the years, and indeed as it's forming this year, it's overwhelmingly books published by uh, publishers in those countries. There's one or two exceptions, but almost exclusively in the English language initially, that kind of thing. That's still overwhelmingly what it is. Now, that, that's, that's a, that is as much a built-in bias of, of the list and what we're doing as it has to do with the state of the field. And I'm always, I always feel cautious because, you know, you're left wondering there is a work being published outside the English language, being published outside our ready access that may well fall into our purview, but we don't see it or I have some trouble accessing it. So we have to be a little bit cautious about it. I mean, I, I do look at books, look to books like um, The Year's Best African Speculative Fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a second one of those coming out. And um, I look to books like that to try and go, well, do you see work that's being published on the continent in the case of that book or in, other, in the case of other, uh, say, lo- you know, anthologies that are sort of uh, geographically focused? Do mm. you find them you know, different markets or whatever else in, in the Nordic countries or through South Asia or whatever? You do see quite active publishing in South Asia. Yeah. Um, you don't see – I'm not aware of as much in – uh, on the continent, though there are changes there, uh, as you know, Nadia Korafor is caught up caught up in launching a speculative fiction publishing house in on the continent. So that mm. presumably will change. You, know, you would hope that you would see work that was directed, that was written, you know, that was written and published for an audience, and then you get to see it elsewhere. So like you get to see fiction that was written and published, say in China, as happens prolifically, and then yeah. we get to see what happened with it. Uh, and there are good examples of that and more and more of it. That's happened in Southeast Asia, that's happened on the continent, wherever else. That's what, what I'm waiting to see more of as well. And it's happening bit by bit. But there is an awful lot of, you know, this is people, primarily what we see are people are in North America, in the United States of America, talk, oh, sorry, talking to themselves. And so that does, you know, well, in, in, in fairness, in, in, in fairness to readers, though, and in, for that matter, in, in, in fairness to Locus, we see the books that we see. I mean, it's it's an effort to to find or, or track down uh, small publishers who exist. Uh, like, uh, uh, you, to go back to the Zen Show collection, which has subsequently been republished uh, by Small Beer Press, I believe. But you know, we just happen to have somebody on the Crawford Award Committee that year who got a copy. I finally figured it out. Uh, got a copy by going to a convention somewhere in England where I think Zen was hand-selling copies of her collection. And it got... that That's almost random. Uh, but uh, most of these small publishers in other countries don't even know... A lot of them don't even know to send review copies to a place like Locus. I mean, sometimes at Locus we get a confirmation bias that everybody knows who we are, and they don't. They really don't outside of our... Fairly narrow band of readers and subscribers. That's very true. All I'm saying is, though, that this is, in fact, why we need to sort of keep acknowledging it and and be wary of making, you know, sweeping statements where you kind of go, well, this does or doesn't exist, when, in fact, 
it's built into the structure of what we're doing with it. And, and it's not a fundamental flaw. It's a characteristic. Yeah, uh, it is. And it's, it's not that different. I mean, we, we sometimes act as though uh, the science fiction and fantasy and horror fields are discovering all these things for the first time. And when you talk to uh, translators of, of, of general fiction, this has always been an issue. It's been an issue uh, throughout general literature. It's, 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 it's not something which is unique to, uh, to science fiction or fantasy at all. It's just that science fiction and fantasy is finally coming into that world of this is what inter truly international and, and translated literature looks like. Now, there is a problem, obviously, uh, of trying to establish some award that would represent multiple languages. Several years ago, I was involved in a well-meaning, but as it turned out, ill-fated effort to uh, to present a translation award every year. And some friends who, maybe I shouldn't mention who was involved in it. We all, no. but, but, but by and large, the idea was we should look at all translations. We should get, we should look at the, if there's a French translation of a Chinese novel that hasn't appeared in English, we should some, find somebody in France who reads, you can see exactly where this is going. You can't find judges to do that. And if you do find judges to do that, they can't compare what they're doing. Um, you know, a, a German novel uh, translated into, uh, I don't know, uh, Vietnamese is not going to be comparable to anything else. And nobody except the actual translator or somebody who knows that. So, so in other words, it's really not possible to look at all the multiple international translations, which is why those of us in this Anglo-American axis look at things that show up in English. Most of us can only read yeah. English. Oh, that's true. It's true. You've got to do what you can. So let me ask you, have you read anything good lately? Well, uh, now we're talking about 2024, but I can, I can give a couple of... I, I, I guess it's okay to say that uh, Kelly Link's novel is very long and earns its length. I will say that much without going into too much detail. It's not out until February. It's one of the questions that comes up when somebody who is a well-known short story writer and almost revered short story writer writes something which is a long way from being a short story. Um, and then, and, and then, and then you figure out, wait a minute, this isn't what I was expecting. Oh, I was expecting a slightly expanded, you know, novella length story. No, this is a 600 and some page novel. Um, and so the, the, the two novels I read that'll be reviewed in our upcoming double issue, I guess, of Locus, that and, and Nisi Shaw's sequel to her, uh, Everfair novel, um, which is, it does something which I think is interesting and, uh, this has to do with historical fiction and structure, because one of the things that Nisi Shaw does in her new novel, which is a direct sequel to Everfair, is similar to what Nicola Griffith does in Meanwood, which is her sequel to Hild. And that is, the first novel, in each case, covered a couple of decades. Uh, first, uh, Hild covered basically the first 18 or 19 years of Hild's life. The second novel covers maybe three or four years. So the second novel is much more of a no much more uh, expansive in one sense, it's longer, but much more concentrated. These novels are exactly the same thing. Um, the Everfair novel covered like 20 years of, it, it was in Europe, it was in North America, it's in Africa, it's in China, it's all over the world. Second novel takes place in one year and in one continent. Uh, so I, I, it's it's a strategy which I think I've seen before, but I think is interesting. Yep. 
because you're basically taking, an, taking what seems to be an expansive epic in the first volume and concentrating much more on a few characters in a more limited setting in the second volume. Which means if you just want it, if you want more of the same, you're not necessarily going to get it. It's interesting. A while ago, we talked about the books we were looking forward to, and, I, and somebody said to me, maybe it was you, that they couldn't think of any books they were looking forward to in 2024 at that point. Uh-huh. And yet more and more 2024 is unfolding with some really interesting looking books. I mean, you've named one of three enormous fantasy novels that are coming yeah. out that I'm looking forward to. There's that. There's Paolo Bacigalupi's Navola, which is the first of a pair of novels about dragons. Mm-hmm. There's Lev Grossman's uh, Arthurian novel, The Bright Sword. Uh, all three of those are like nearly 600-page novels or over 600 pages. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested to see if I can find the time in the universe to read those. And also, I mean, again, not meaning to segue too much into 2024, actually, uh, I note that a book that we've been waiting for for 15 years, at least, will find its way out into the world this coming March. And that's Peter Beagle's I'm Afraid You've Got Dragons. Which sounds to me like a wonderful, uh, delightful, not not at all what you'd think a late career trying to reclaim his glory. Because the best one of the things I one of the most enjoyable reading experiences I had last year was the two volumes of the Essential Peter Beagle, which makes you realize somebody who's for more than fifty years now has been producing consistently interesting fiction that became more and more autobiographical as he went on. This one sounds like it's somewhere between his. Uh, sort of domestic comedy and his, uh, his dragon stories, uh, which means the two this things he does book, best could be combined in this. It's interesting. This book, first of all, as you probably know, I mean, dates back in different format to at least 2007 when right. uh, Sharon November acquired the book and then it sort of disappeared off into the world and then reemerged. So it's like it's a, a combination of a younger beagle almost with an older beagle finishing That's it. That's kind of what I'm thinking, yeah. Um, I, no one's read or supposed to have read it yet, but I can say that I, one of the things I did when I was in New York was I spent time with my my agent, Howard Morheim, who is also Peter Beagle's agent, and I spent time with Joe Monty, who is Peter Beagle's editor. And both of them were very clear. They thought this was the best thing he'd done since The Last Unicorn. And they're mm. not in a hyperbole. I mean, it's hyperbole, but not intended as hyperbole, as though genuinely this was it. Uh, I think the title slightly misleads you. I think it makes it sound like it's more of a chuckly book. Um, but the impression I get is that it's really quite a substantial book um, at, at, at the bottom and one that's going to be very much in the sort of somewhere between uh, The Last Unicorn and The Princess Bride. That sounds wonderful. I mean, and one of the things I, I, I don't think at all it's uh, misleading to think of it as chuckly because one of the things that Beagle has been able to do consistently is write some very funny stories that are very serious at the same time. And I count the, the last unicorn among those. So, so I, I'm very much looking forward to that. Uh, there's another book we could mention, which is actually already out, but I just now saw a copy of it a couple of days ago which could be one of the more controversial books of 2023, which is Jeff Ryman's novel, Him, mm. uh, which I've, I'm confused by what I've read about the advanced publicity. I mean, this is obviously a uh, original and possibly controversial version of the life of Jesus, it seems. Um, mm-hmm. The parts I've, I've, I've read advanced notices that say there are elements of science fiction in it. I don't know what that means yet. Um, 
but it seems from just the first couple of chapters, so I don't think there's a spoiler, that we are dealing with a uh, trans gene, a trans version of Jesus who decides to be a, a born a girl, born a girl and decides to be a boy after a young friend dies, and seems to already have very interesting mystical powers. So it looks like it's moving in the direction of a fantasy novel. I don't know if it's going to be that controversial, actually. Uh, it will be interesting to see how the book is received. I read an early version of it a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. and I've also had the advantage that you've not of reading Ian Mon's Locus Review. Very, very, ah. very glowing um, Locus Review of the book. And it whether it will be controversial, I don't know. You, I mean, you can't always cho you know, choose what you know, sort of the world out there will find to be controversial. But him, I mean, it's beautiful. The, the, what I read was beautifully written, which is what you'd expect from, from mm, Jeff Ryan. And thoughtful and sensitive and those sorts of things. Um, how the world reacts, I don't know. I really would be eager, actually, to talk to Jeff on the podcast about the book because it's coming out. It, probably in a few weeks, I think. Yeah, here we are. Coming November, I think it's the beginning of November it comes out. But one of the things I'm, I mean, I, I guess this is this is another thing about where we can feel smug about how tolerant our field is or our readership is. That if, if as as a mainstream novel, as a general fiction novel, and I don't actually, I assume it's being published that way. It could generate some religious-based controversy. On the other hand, um, some of Jeff's earlier fiction could have been read as controversial if it were read by too many people outside of our field. One of the, thing, one of the odd experiences that I had was teaching Jeff's novel was, which I thought was absolutely gorgeous. Again, beautifully written, a revision of the whole story of L. Frank Baum, the story of Judy Garland, and the story of The Wizard of Oz. Um, and I didn't think it was controversial, except there are some very disturbing scenes in, um, involving sexual abuse. And when I was teaching it, I discovered that this was a literal trigger for some students in class. Um, yeah. By and, and today, I think publishing that novel with those scenes uh, would generate some pushback, but it didn't generate pushback within our field because it was read mostly within the field. The story about teaching that has a happy ending because by sheer coincidence, Jeff was in Chicago the week I was teaching it, and it turns out he is a terrific teacher. So he absolutely convinced my entire class, including the one student who had been traumatized herself, uh, that this was almost the only way you could actually reconcile the story of The Wizard of Oz if you imagine it to be a true story. So yeah. So anyway, my point is that sometimes something looks controversial outside our field, within our field. It doesn't really get noticed that much. Michael Moorcock's Behold the Man was a radical, you know, new wave kind of time yeah. travel revisioning of Jesus. As far as I know, it may have had some, uh, it may have generated some outrage among uh, conservative British politicians. But as a novel, it's simply seen as a kind of, you know, fantasy alternative to a famous historical story. And it could be Jeff's novel will be seen the same way. Well, it's only out in two weeks, him from Angry Robot. I think it comes out a little bit later in Australia because of the impact of COVID on the universe. And I think it comes mm -hmm. out around the same time in the US. So maybe we should t talk about it. I mean, we're sort of bubbling around because what 
listeners may or may not be aware of is that we are filling because there was a podcast that was supposed to happen in this space. Ah, we had cool. hoped this morning to be talking to Elizabeth Hand and Alexi Harrow, as we have long promised about Haunted House novels and about their novels, uh, Starling House and The Haunting on the Hill. But because of illness, unfortunately, that's not happening. So we've had to kind of, well, we didn't have to. We could have skipped it, I guess. But we felt we should put a podcast out. And we've been sort of dancing, kind of going, let's make up stuff and fill in. And that's how we find ourselves possibly talking about, maybe talking to Jeff Ryman about him and doing some other things. Because we're also painfully aware that we are nowhere near our promised limit of podcasts for you, <laughs> are we, Gary? We owe well, them. We owe them a few. Must or threatened, depending on your point of view, I suppose. We've, 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 we've relieved people from listening to too many conversations, like the one we're having right now. Um, but we do have, I mean, we, we do have another conversation to, to focus ourselves, uh, possibly with, with one or two guests, where we actually get to the point of looking at the recommended reading list, looking at the year in review. This is the time of the year when all of us who work for Locus are uh, dragooned to write the year, what happened this year. And, and, and every year we all, as you know, as the person who edits some of these, we all complain about why do we have to do this every year and what difference does it make whether a book was published in this year or last year anyway. And, and, and a number of people, including myself, will mistakenly say one of the best books I read that year was actually one that was published two years earlier, but I just got around to reading it this year. So it, it becomes a nuisance, but by and large, it's a service. So I, you know, I do have, I'm developing a list of things uh, that I thought were uh, recommendable. We're all in the process of adding things to the list now. And one of the problems that comes up again and again, apart from the uh, question of classifying things, uh, you know, is, is something fantasy or science fiction? Well, you get a get out of jail free card if it's a first novel because we don't cast, we don't subcategorize <laughs> novels. Uh, it's true. So, and, so that you know, kind of I mean, thing, we'll, we'll be focusing on that the next few weeks, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, that, that definitely will. And, and I mean, the timing on that always strikes me as, in some ways a little unfortunate because I'm sure what listeners would like is a end-of-the-year Christmas buyer's guide where they could go, well, I need to buy gifts. What books should I buy for the ones I love who like science fiction or fantasy or horror mm. or whatever? And our recommended lists, such as they are, come out in February where we go, well, you could have bought this, but you know. You yeah, that's true. It. We should probably be recommending some specific things. Have you got a book that you would recommend to everybody? Or to by weird not chance, everybody? To somebody. By weird chance, I'm sitting surrounded by 2023 end-of-the-year books. Mm -hmm. If I was going to recommend books, I would recommend, uh, if you want something new, startling, different, try Vajra Chandra Sakara's The Saint of Bright Doors, which is getting a major PR all over the place and is widely widely lauded. Was, if you want a rollicking sort of romp of a novel, you can try Shigidi and the Brass Head of a Balafon, mm -hmm. which is the Wale Talabi book we talked about. If you want a serious alt, uh, alternate history, uh, Francis Spufford's Cahokia Jazz comes to mind. If you want to a, a beautifully written, dreadfully depressing environmental novel, you could try The Deluge by Stephen Markey. We're surrounded by book, Gary. Or Starling House. Or, you know, 
Haunting on Mr. the Hill. Or Hopeland. Don't forget Hopeland, which was one of my favorite books of you. Well, one of the things I've been Green looking Kong. at, uh, I, I already mentioned, actually in terms of gift books, I already mentioned this earlier, but the two volumes of The Essential Peter Beagle would be, there are lots and lots of readers out there, I believe, who still know mostly uh, The Last Unicorn and maybe have read one or two of the other novels. I mean, I think as a novel, one of Peter Beagle's best works is called The Innkeeper's Song, and it almost never gets cited among his major work. Uh, it kind of came and went. But, but the, the essential Peter Beagle kind of covers what you were saying about his, his forthcoming novel. It kind of covers both his early career and his more recent stuff, and it's delightful. There was a number, there, there was a trend this year, which I think is a good trend, uh, uh, it's, it's not new, it's not unique to this year, of short story collections that revisit either classic fairy tales or, um, or earlier fiction. The, the earliest one this year, again, going back to Keller Link, was White Cat, Black Dog. I have to get the colors right up. Um, which was a very Kelly Linkian approach to different fairy tales, which sometimes are so deeply embedded in her own stories that you have to figure out from an, what what the fairy tale is here. But she did that. Uh, Dora, uh, Theodora Goss did The Collected Enchantments, which largely yep. is her revisionist idea and, and reinvention of fairy tales. And Christopher Barzak did a collection called Monstrous Alterations, which isn't all fairy tales, but they're all stories based on earlier stories um, and modifications. For example, there's a story based on... Uh, Pose William Wilson. There's a story based on um, the curious case of Benjamin Button. They're all original stories, but people who like stories about stories uh, will find, I think there are plenty of collections this year that re represent that. I have a thoroughly unfair I idea. and I'm going to do this and I'm going to sort of say to you, you don't have to do it, mm. but a personal choice of a book in each category that you liked that came out this year so for example i could say for science fiction novels i really liked hopeland by ian mcdonald i hmm. really liked um mr breakfast by jonathan carroll in fantasy i really liked starling house by alexi harrow in horror um i obviously because i've mentioned it over and over again the wale talabi book was a first novel that i really really liked my favorite hmm. short story collection of the year personally and i think one of the best was jewel box by e lily Yu. yeah you know so that would be some those would be things that might go on my list along with i mean i'm going to skip anthology because i feel compromised there but there were some good anthologies and there's a couple of really good non-fiction books which is not something i would normally get into but mike harrison had his memoir wish i was here mm. our friend neil harrison had his book all these worlds and neil nina allen edited Maureen Kincaid Speller's book, A Traveler in, in, in Time, all of which I'd recommend to lovers of science fiction. Let me think offhand. I mean, in, in, in terms of, um, hmm, in terms of, well, okay, I, I'll start off with anthologies because uh, I will argue that the Book of Witches was one of the major anthologies this year. And I say that without bias because your anthology last year, Someone in Time, was one that was right up my alley. It was exactly the kind of stories that I've loved since I was a kid. I love time travel romance thingies and going back to... Uh, which stories are fine? You know, I have no problem with it. But these were really good, interesting, multicultural witch stories. So that that certainly is a, is a strong anthology. Uh, the, the 
the short story collections I've already mentioned a couple of times. Two of the novels that did not get a lot of attention that I thought were very good, uh, not not a lot of attention in the States, were um, Christopher Priest's Airside and Nina Allen's uh, Conquest. I think it was called, yeah, Conquest. I love yes, Conquest. And, and, and both of those are a kind of unique, almost metafictional, almost kind of... Uh, Bellardian in a way, and, and one of the things that we hope to be talking about is the work that Christopher Priest is doing on, on Ballard right now. But that's uh, that's kind of uh, important. There's another uh, collection, a big retrospective collection, I guess we should mention, which I think you were involved in in some way, was the best of Catherine Valenti. Uh, volume one, a huge volume one. Um, but um, and, and with, with more to come. But Catalinti uh, is a writer. If, if you've got anybody who's enjoyed anything by Catalinti, this is a lot of Catherine Vellum, and it's it's only part of it. I'm looking also at uh, some a very few things that I read that I would count as horror novels because I don't read much much horror. But I would yeah. count Sylvia Marina Garcia's Silver Nitrate as mostly a horror novel. And um, to go back to Revisioning earlier uh, fairy tales, there were a um, couple of the, there were a couple of novels by um, Kingfisher that are kind of on the edge of horror novels. I think the House with Good Bones and Thornhedge. I think a House with Good Bones was this year. I'm not sure. Um, and let me think. Uh, for okay, this is again uh, we're talking about Christmas gifts. A lot of people have wanted for, for years to see Connie Willis's. Hilarious take on Roswell. And for people who like uh, what Connie Willis does in her comedic mode, I mean, this is not one of her deeply researched, uh, uh, serious, well, it, 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 it's serious in some ways, but it, it's Connie Willis in her comic epic mode or epic comic mode or so is, is the road to Roswell. And anybody who's a Connie Willis fan would love to have that as a Christmas present, I suppose. Um, it, it tells you a lot about how the, mar the the world publishing market has changed, that I've never seen a copy of that book. Really? I think it's, uh, it's, it's kind of because it, uh, it's its own market. I, don't, that, I think Connie Willis by now is her own market. I will mention one of, my favorite, uh, one of my favorite science fiction novels, which I can only defend because it, again, touches on things that I like to read about, was La Vitaire's The Circumference of the World. Not a long novel but a novel which is catnip to anybody who grew up on classic science fiction. And again, it has some very funny satirical stuff in it. One of the things I guess is is kind of a trend when I'm looking at the stuff that I liked at least is that there was a lot of humor in the fiction this year. I mean, we, 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 we've mentioned more than once the Wally Talabi novel, Shigeti uh, and the Brass Head of a Bull. There's some hilarious stuff in that. There's hilarious stuff in Connie Willis's novel. There's some hilarious stuff in the Lobby Terror novel. Um, so, and I, th I always think that's a, the, two of the novels I read toward the end of the year were two of the three uh, Sivas Korax novels, a trilogy by K.J. Parker, which is as funny as you expect from K.J. Parker. As funny and as well thought out. Uh, so I, I'm always... Uh, encouraged when I see that science fiction and fantasy actually has room for good comic writing because it's a field which has in the past occasionally taken itself a bit too seriously. There was, a time, there was a time not more than 20 years ago 
when it was fairly rare to find a good comic science fiction novel or a good comic fantasy novel. Now, obviously, Terry Pratchett changed all that for fantasy. Uh, for science fiction, there were jokey things that went around. Maybe, maybe Douglas Adams changed it for science fiction. But the problem with that is you don't have a lot of humorous science fiction in the wake of Douglas Adams, really. And you don't have a lot of humorous fantasy in the wake of Terry Pratchett because nobody tries to do Terry Pratchett because they know they can't. Wow. I think some of it is actually because it's really hard to do well. Well, that's what I mean. Uh, and, yeah. and, 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 and nevertheless, when I, when I look at and, and Saad Hussein, who again has become one of my favorite writers, is just very, very funny, a very funny writer. There's a kind of almost right. Joseph Heller tone to some of it. Not that I, I don't know if he made it, Gary. Um, hmm? I think oh, we right. made it. I think we well, stumbled we, through we, it in an hour. We've talked through an hour. I haven't even I haven't even talked about. Garth Nix's collection of stories to get back to my business about humor. Or his novel. His novel. Uh, I've read that this year. Okay, good. So, so okay, we can end the, on a positive the, note that the, the science... Yeah. Okay. I was talking about Sir Hereward and Mr. Fitz, the collected yep. story. Uh, but my point is, it's a, it's, a, it's a good holiday season note to end on that science fiction and fantasy can be funny without being frivolous. Indeed. Well, we shall see everybody, well, well, she'll be in the ears of everybody before the holiday season Mm -hmm. kicks off in earnest. But I think that might be everything for today, Gary. We might go see, make some plans for some future podcasts and see how we are between now and our brief hiatus. We'll see what we can do before the hiatus. Until next time, then, this has been the Code Street Podcast.